Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Like some food for thought? Tune in to Radical Philosophy with discussions on freedom, happiness, knowledge, evil and rational argument. With words from Hawthorne, Tatman, Jenkins, Hutchinson, Hirsi Ali and Plumwood. Let's get radical about philosophy. While anyone in base, none can be entirely free and noble. Margaret Fuller, Women in the 19th Century, 1845. Welcome to Radical Philosophy. I'm your host, Beth Matthews. Today we're going to be speaking about one of the most important philosophical concepts, freedom. And I'm speaking to Dr Jackie Broad, who is an Australian Research Council Future Fellow in the Monash Philosophy Department. Welcome to the program. Thank you, Beth. Now, our current ideas about liberty were forged in a political and philosophical debates that occurred in the 17th and 18th centuries. But why is it that we seldom hear about any women's contribution to those debates? Well, I think there are many reasons why, until very recently at least, uh, we've rarely heard about historical women's views on liberty. I think one of the main reasons is there's always been a certain blindness on the part of past historians of ideas. They would ignore uh, women's writings due to certain biases or cultural societal prejudices they had in favour of men, and in particular in favour of the great male genius, that singular individual, male individual, who apparently originated certain thoughts or certain ideas on a given topic, such as the topic of liberty. But another reason, too, is that women often chose different genres in, it, in which to express their views about freedom. And in particular, they would often write in religious texts. Um, and today, of course, uh, religion is very much demarcated from philosophy. This was a, a split that sort of occurred uh, in the late 19th century, whereas in the 17th century, much philosophy uh, and religion, um, particularly moral philosophy and religion, would overlap, and they were not uh, separate spheres of inquiry. But in addition to choosing different different genres in which to express their views, they would also write about freedom and, and liberty in their works about the family and about marriage and about women's education. And again, until very recently, these were not thought to be topics of great philosophical interest. So a household manual and how to run your your kitchen and so on was not really thought to be you know a prestige philosophical text. And yet it was in these texts that women uh, would express their ideas about freedom. Um, And one last reason, I think, is that also, while these women did publish their ideas in print, many women favoured manuscript publications, in particular letters and notebooks. And many of their best ideas about liberty can be found in letters that they wrote to sometimes quite famous male philosophers where they would kind of test their ideas in, in a kind of correspondence before they would put them out in print. And until the digital age, those writings were extremely difficult to access. 
But of course now that that's really no longer an issue and as a result, I think more awareness about women's writings and their views on freedom is, is growing and receiving attention. And toward that end, this new this project of mine, this ARC-funded project, is going to seek to publish more of those unpublished letters to help further uh, interest in the topic. So what was it that inspired you to study Women on Liberty? Well, I suppose there's been two main sources of inspiration for me. One is sort of been a political or philosophical source of inspiration. I've been inspired by ideas, if you like. And the second is a more prosaic kind of practical reason uh, that has led me to studying these women. The first, the first source of inspiration sort of relates to that um, the topic I was discussing before, the, the idea that women haven't really had much of a profile in the history of philosophy. And personally, I think this can have uh, an effect on making women in the profession feel as though they don't really belong there. And it's not just me thinking this. It's actually a well-documented problem for the discipline as a whole. Studies, recent studies in America and the UK and Australia too have shown that women are actually significantly underrepresented in senior and continuing positions in philosophy departments. And there are also on social media, there are blogs on what it is like to be a woman in philosophy and, and uh, you know, revealing that it's actually not very nice sometimes to be a woman in philosophy. I think um, part of the problem is that traditionally it's been very much a male or a masculine discipline. Uh, when you walk down the corridors in a philosophy department, very often you'll see only male faces looking back at you from the walls. When they list the top ten philosophers you know, in, in newspaper studies, very rarely will that list include a woman. And if uh, the list does happen to mention someone such as Simone de Beauvoir, it's usually not a woman uh, from before the 20th century. Uh, and so, as I said, I mean, I think this makes women feel as though they don't belong in philosophy. And I've always been very strongly motivated to show, well, if you take a closer look at the historical texts, women have always been in the discipline. They've always been arguing alongside their male colleagues. And they've always been discussing the same issues in their correspondences, in conversations, and in their texts. And in this case, I think they've always been discussing issues to do with liberty and freedom, which is a hugely revered topic in political philosophy. Now, my second, my second reason for studying the topic, as I said, more of a practical one, and then that is that after I uh, finished my PhD, I didn't have a full-time job. And, uh, but luckily for me, my home department, the Monash Philosophy Department, has always been very supportive of the work and the research that I do. And in fact, I should say that uh, we have a corridor that does in fact have women's faces on the wall looking back at you. And so when I found myself looking for a job, a colleague of mine, Karen Green, invited me on board an Australian Research Council project about the history of women's political thought. And when we started writing the book for that project, it quickly became apparent that freedom, liberty, and particular women's thoughts about freedom is a huge topic uh, spanning uh, not just political aspects to do with freedom, but also moral and metaphysical ones. And so with this new ARC-funded project, I'm looking at that topic in a lot more depth. I have heard that the typical philosopher, the, the typical image that people have in their minds of a philosopher is a white middle class uh, male. Uh, yeah, sure. And, uh, you know, and until very recently, uh, these, you know, the, the views that we've been getting have been very uh, much representative of white middle class 
uh, Western Westernized men. Uh, but uh, saying that, you just reminded me. There's also another blog called "This Is What a Philosopher Looks Like." I think that's what it's called, and it's a, it's a blog that sort of invites everyone to put up their pictures. And so there's this wonderful array of, of pregnant women, and you know, we, you know, pe- you know, people with big hair and people with no hair, and so we're starting to break down that mold just just simply by showing that this generalization about what a philosophy is, is is just so vulnerable to counterexamples so many counterexamples is we, we take all different guises could you explain about the term negative liberty oh well sure yes this is a this is a, a term of art if you like it's, a, it's part of the accepted vocabulary of political philosophy and so if you're going to talk about the, the topic of, of liberty and freedom you have to know what, what is meant by it it was a concept of liberty that was first made most famous by Isaiah Berlin in a hugely influential essay called Two Concepts of Liberty from the 1950s. Berlin, I should add, is one of those singular male geniuses who's greatly revered today. And his essay subsequently shaped and influenced much discussion on the topic of freedom. And so he defines the concept of negative liberty as the freedom to do as one wills in the absence of external obstacles or impediments. Now, the 17th century writers, I should add, they don't use the term negative liberty, but they, uh, they do follow perhaps the most famous proponent of negative liberty of the time, and that's Thomas Hobbes. And so he said that an agent is free when she is at liberty to act upon the last determination of her will in the absence of external constraints or opposition. So what does that mean? Well, he, he likened uh, freedom of human beings to the freedom of the, in terms of the movement of water. And so when uh, water is embanked, as in a, a canal or in a, a, you know, um, a channel and so on, uh, we think that the water is not free to flow everywhere. And naturally, he says, when human beings are chained up or imprisoned within falls, we say they are not at liberty. And so his, his concept of liberty, this was actually quite a new concept of liberty at the time, became uh, quite influential. So what were some of the views of some early modern women about freedom? Well, they were sort of influenced by uh, Hobbes, and so uh, some of them uh, embraced this idea of negative liberty in order to point out that uh, married women in early modern society suffer from a significant lack of negative liberty. Now, one of the first women to start raising these views in the 17th century was actually an acquaintance of Hobbes. She knew him. Her name was Margaret Cavendish. But she, her views are, she's a little ambivalent about it because on the one hand she thought that women could attain their desires without facing external impediments and obstacles, provided that they use their cunning and their natural attractiveness and their beauty to men in order to enthrall men under their spell. So she's pointing to the fact that nature gives women you know, great allure and attractiveness to men and this enables them to achieve a certain measure of freedom in their lives. But uh, on the other hand, in many other texts, Cavendish points to the fact that married women are in fact veritably enslaved by their husbands. By saying that, she's pointing to the fact that legally speaking at the time, wives could not leave the marital home without their husband's permission. They couldn't spend their money as they as they wanted to without obtaining permission. And they couldn't associate with whoever they liked without obtaining their husband's permission. And so in Cavendish view, this amounts to women basically being prisoners in their own homes or birds in cages, as she says. Other women of the time, they don't, they don't uh, really uh, hold to this view of negative liberty that Hobbes 
uh, promoted in his works, they point to the fact, rather, that women are rendered unfree by their lack of education. And Mary Astor, a, a woman uh, I've studied quite a bit, she's, she's a big uh, proponent of this view. And she, she points to the fact that women aren't free because they're actually they're enslaved by their passions. They don't have the training and the education to act according to reason and to do what is rational. And so this actually points to a different kind of freedom. It points to the idea that while those lucky, attractive, alluring women might in fact have not been uh, prisoners in their own homes, they may nevertheless have still been prisoners in their own heads. And this is something that concerns Astor. It also comes up in a lot of the other women writers too. One really strong impression you get from, from reading women on liberty is this idea of the lived experience of being constrained, being enslaved, being lacking or lacking control of your own thoughts as well. Uh, you don't get that so strongly in the male writers. And this is, this is, this is what uh, interests me most about reading them, this emphasis they have on the fact that while you might have no external constraints whatsoever, you may nevertheless be internally constrained in your mind. Now, there's also a term positive liberty as well. Uh, this is the, the other uh, concept that comes from Isaiah Berlin's essay on two concepts of liberty. There's negative liberty and there's positive liberty. Positive liberty is not freedom from external interference and constraints and threats and so on, but rather freedom to become someone or be something. And Berlin says it's, it expresses this desire to be one's own agent, not to be the puppet or the plaything of someone else, but to pursue your own will and interests and desires and not those of others. He says it's to be a doer and not someone who has things done to them. And I think above all it expresses this idea that the person who has positive liberty is the locus of control for her own choices and actions. She has self-determination, self-governance and self-control. This was an extremely attractive idea to the early modern women. I've, I've mentioned Mary Astor, but there were many other religious thinkers who adopted this view. And, and their ideas were um, a natural development from the uh, Protestant Reformation in a way, which laid emphasis upon individual independence, attaining salvation through your own efforts and not by slavishly following the opinions of others. And uh, to attain salvation or to attain happiness through your own efforts, of course, the individual had to be, she had to be the one making her own choices and actions based upon her own rationalizations and so on. And in particular, based upon the interests of her higher self, according to these religious thinkers, based upon the interests of her immortal soul. And many women felt that women as a social group were in fact enslaved to their baser natures, to their bodies, and were not uh, free in their minds. You're listening to Radical Philosophy on 3CR Community Radio, and I'm speaking to Dr Jackie Broad about women on liberty. What is the difference between physical freedom and freedom of thoughts and actions? Well, I mean, you might think that to some extent it's, it's this difference that I've been spelling out between negative liberty and positive liberty. But this is a good place to add that it's actually hotly contested that there is in fact a difference between positive uh, and negative liberty. Certainly since the 1960s when a writer called Gerald McCallum came out presenting this view, scholars have thought that the distinction between positive and negative liberty is actually a rather artificial one. 
And why do they say that? Well, you might think that if you just think about the bare concept of freedom, it's always going to have a negative aspect and it's always going to have a positive aspect to it. Think about, for example, you might say one is free provided that there's a certain absence of preventing conditions. Those preventing conditions might be external obstacles such as prison walls and chains and so on, or they might be internal obstacles such as passions and irrational desires and so on. But then there's also a positive aspect, something that that freedom from external constraints facilitates for you, and that's the presence of certain conditions of character or the presence of certain circumstances, such as being your own master, for example. I mean, um, but despite these reservations, I think there's still a difference between theorists of positive and negative liberty. Certainly they have different values and ideals about liberty, about what really matters in order to be free. They differ over what constitutes an impediment, whether it be those prison walls or the prison walls inside your own head. (laughs) And they differ over what we are free to do or become. But the really interesting thing about studying historical women's writings is that, as I said, their writings predate Berlin's reflections on the topic. And so the distinctions are always being blurred in their work, depending on what they're focusing on. If they're focusing on women's oppression in marriage, then very often they're, they're concerned with free freedom from external constraints or freedom from domination. But if they're focusing on the question of the fact that women sorely lacked a higher education in the early modern period, then they focus on those internal preventing conditions, the the walls that are inside a woman's own mind preventing her from truly living up to the dignity of her nature and so on. Would you have a definition for republican liberty? Oh, well, it's interesting that you've lighted upon that because um, some scholars in the past couple of decades have thought that this actually introduces quite a significant third concept of liberty, a, a concept of liberty that's somewhere in between positive and negative liberty. Now, um, Republican liberty, uh, in the sim- simple, simplest form, is freedom from domination and dependence. Now, you are not free, according to the Republican. If someone else has the power to interfere in your affairs and dispose of your property at their arbitrary will and pleasure without being accountable. Now, to get, a, to get a grasp on that, to get a hold on it, it helps to think about the relationship between a slave and her benevolent and kind slave master. Now, you might think that when you're a, the slave to such a master, you're going to be allowed to do a lot of things. You might be permitted to start a family, to to engage in your work according to your own hours and so on. There are many freedoms that a kind of benevolent slave master might give you. Nevertheless, the Republican insight is that you are still not free, provided that your slave master has the power to interfere arbitrarily in your affairs, even if that master never, ever interferes. The Your lack of freedom here um, lies in your status or your relationship with this other person who has a power. So this this helps to distinguish it from from negative liberty, where you are not free if someone actually interferes uh, in your life. So 
the, the women of the 17th century are well aware of this tradition of thought. We don't, it, to us, it seems like a new uh, ad, advent in the study of, of liberty, but it's actually quite an ancient idea. And it was hugely popular in the 17th century. And uh, as a consequence, you see women applying it in their analyses of women's lack of freedom in marriage. And a, a woman called Sarah Chapone comes out and writes, I think, um, quite a strong critique of marital law in the 18th century using this concept of republican liberty to highlight the injustice of married women's situation. Do these women's concerns about liberty in the early modern period fit into the present day categories of liberty? Well, as I was hinting before, I think there are many different interpreters and many different interpretations of positive liberty and negative liberty. So we're looking at manifold theories here. And I, I think one thing that, that is, becomes quite apparent to me when reading these texts is that freedom is a very slippery concept. <laughs> the closer you get to, say, to thinking, oh, that is the kind of freedom we want for society, or that is the kind of freedom we want for individual women and so on, uh, it, it slips away from you. And I think reading these women's writings really contributes towards my appreciation of that fact. One thing that I find uh, really interesting is that they do not really fit into present-day discussions of liberty in terms of the kind of holistic approach they take to the topic. And by that I mean that we today, especially uh, in feminist theory, think a lot about political freedom, but their concerns are also to do with moral freedom and metaphysical freedom and religious freedom. And, And that's kind of a little alien to us today because... And philosophy as a discipline, we, we tend to distinguish quite sharply between issues to do with freedom and determinism, metaphysical issues about, well, if every physical event has a cause, are any human actions ever really free? That topic is, is considered to be quite uh, distinct and different from topics to do with political freedom. What, what kind of uh, rules do we have to have governing a, a free society and so on? The, the early modern women don't look at it this way. They, as I said, they take a holistic approach. They start by looking at what kind of creatures we are metaphysically and what kind of conditions have to obtain in order for us to be metaphysically free. But more importantly, what kind of conditions have to obtain in order for, in order for us to be morally responsible for our own perfection and our own salvation and so on. And, and that leads them to thinking about internal constraints in the mind, but then it leads on naturally to these political interventions where they start thinking about well, what kind of conditions have to pertain in external society for me to attain happiness, for me to obtain salvation. And, and that leads to some surprising suggestions for socio-political reforms, such as changes to education and changes to marital laws. Uh, I say surprising, I mean surprising in their own time, not, not so much today. How does Mary Astell's knowledge that a woman's external circumstances can severely limit her internal capability for self-determination? Oh, well, that, I mean, that's just uh, pointing uh, to a, an example of what I, I've just been talking about, actually, where one woman who has, Mary Astor, who has this particular notion of moral and metaphysical uh, agency, starts thinking about what a full recognition of that uh, human agency in women would imply for women's situation in marriage. Now, I should add, it's not entirely explicit in, in Astor's uh, work that 
uh, this is the case, but certainly there's a, a number of implicit arguments that suggest that she thought that women could not obtain true moral freedom within marriage so long as husbands had the power to... Um, the arbitrary power to interfere in their in their wives' lives or to dispose of their uh, property at their arbitrary will and pleasure. So she, she critiques, I think, the situation of marriage in her time, the marital laws in the early 18th century that diminished and disempowered uh, diminished women's freedom and disempowered them because women uh, were forced to play it safe with their husbands. If they wanted his permission to do anything, they had to kowtow, they had to be servile. They had to be cunning. And for her, this was serious, a serious threat to women's moral selves because uh, it meant that they were not free to overcome their passions and their worldly interests to pursue salvation and their everlasting happiness. And just finally, do you think that women in our society today have true freedom or are they restrained by society's norms? Well, that's an interesting question, and um, my first response to that is that, well, I, I don't think uh, we should think of freedom as an all-or-nothing concept. It's not the case that you're either free or you're not free. It's more more of a kind of a, a, a spectrum, if you like, or a continuum in which you can have it more or less. And I think certainly women in the early modern period had much less freedom. I think we can say that with some confidence compared to women today. And we only have to point to the fact that today, uh, regardless of your conception of freedom, whether you, you hold to a view of negative liberty or, or, or positive liberty, women today have much greater uh, opportunities than they did in the early modern period. They're free from those obstacles, those external obstacles that stop them from entering into the professions. They're free from certain constraints that were laid on their bodies due to child uh, rearing and, and reproduction and so on. And they also have greater achievements available. They have the freedom to be or become what they want to be in a much greater uh, degree today than they did in earlier times. So, But having said that, I mean, obviously, there's still, there's still a greater degree of freedom that women as a social group might obtain compared to men as a social group. So if we do the comparisons, well, you might think that a society in which women still do not earn as much as men, have fewer assets and less superannuation than men, and have a greater share of carer responsibilities than men. A society in which women are taking on uh, these roles and, and suffering from these disadvantages, you might think that that puts them at a, a distinct disadvantage in terms of their uh, freedom. Yeah, I think it is. It definitely puts them at a disadvantage. Thank you very much for being on the program today. Thank you, Beth. It's been my pleasure. And I've been speaking to Dr Jackie Broad about women on liberty. 